Today I'm continuing to teach on the subject of financial stewardship, and this is the beginning of our fourth teaching. And if you've missed any of this teaching, I really encourage you to get hold of our products because uh, the things that I've been saying are totally different than the way most people teach on the subject of prosperity. We started off talking about how we're a steward. That means that we are not managing our own money. We've got to get this attitude. We talked about Abraham, David, other people, that they had this attitude and recognized that everything they had was actually a gift from God and that they were just a steward of His resources. And then we talked from the parable of the unjust steward. And we talked about uh, what made him... Uh, even though he was stealing money from his master, what made his master compliment him? And I tell you, these are just some powerful truths. We also talked about in Luke chapter 16 how Jesus said that being a steward in the area of your finances, trusting God in this area of finances, is the least area of faith or the least use of your faith that there is. If you can't do that which is least, you can't do that which is greater. Today I'm going to begin to start talking about increase and how that God wants us to prosper, how that God wants to bring money to us. And this is really a very controversial subject. And if you'll notice, this is now my third week of teaching on the subject of prosperity. And I'm uh, just now beginning to talk about increase because these other areas are just like foundational. If you are wanting to increase just for selfish reasons, if you don't see yourself as a steward of God's resources and responsible to Him and responding to Him in what He leads you to do, well then really increase could destroy you. And so I believe that you have to get these other things first. You first of all have to have the right attitude, see yourself as a steward, recognize this is the least use of your faith, and that it's a stepping stone to other things. So uh, there's a progression here in the way that I've taught this. But I do want to make the point that God wants us to increase. God wants to bring finances to us. Now, there's a lot of scriptures on this, but let me just go through and summarize some things. Here in the 25th chapter of the book of Matthew, you find the first 13 verses, a story about these 10 virgins. Five were wise, five were foolish, and while they waited on their master to come, some of them ran out of the oil that they had in their lamps, and so they had to go buy some more. And while they were gone, the uh, husband came and received the virgins that still had oil in their lamps, and the others were shut out. Now, the reason I bring this out, I'm not going to teach on that specifically, but I'm going to say that this was talking about stewardship. These ten virgins were all uh, capable or had the potential of being wed to this man, but... They, uh, not all five of them were able to f- fulfill that and actually become the bride of this man because they weren't a good steward. They let their oil go out. They didn't take enough provision. And right after that, it starts giving a, an example about the ten talents that were given to one man, five to another, and one to another. These are not dis- are unrelated subjects. They're all related to each other. And so that's the reason I wanted to point this out. Matthew chapter 25 verse 14 says, For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And unto one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to every man according to his several ability, and straightway took his journey. Then he that had received the five talents went and traded with the same and made them other five talents. Likewise, he that had received two, he also gained two other two. 
But he that had received one went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoneth with them. And so he that had received five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliverest unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained besides them five talents more. But his Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. He also that had received two talents came and said, Lord, thou deliverest unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents besides them. His Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Then he that had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew thee that thou art a hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown, and gathering where thou hast not strawed. And I was afraid, and went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, there thou hast, that is thine. His Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knowest that I reap where I sowed not, and gathered where I have not strawed. Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money to the exchangers, and then at my coming I should have received mine own with usury. Take therefore the talent from him, and give it unto him which hath the ten talents. For unto every one that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken away, even that he hath. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth." Now, my reason for bringing out this parable is to say that the Lord expects us to take what He has given to us and not just hide it in the earth, not just keep what He's given us, but to actually see increase off off of it. God is a God of multiplication. God is a God of increase. He is not a God of subtraction. I really believe, and I tell our students this when they come to school, that even though they are going to school, they're paying tuition money, many of them are having to work a part-time job in order to be in our Bible college, it shouldn't be a time of subtraction. They shouldn't just take like their savings, some of the older couples, and just wear, uh, you know, deplete their savings, draw their savings down so that at the end of school they're worse off financially than they were. I just don't believe that God is like that. God is a God of increase. God wants us to increase. Now, as I say these things, there's going to be some uh, rejection or resistance towards this because as a whole, religion has taught us to just be content with what we have. And I'm going to turn to some other scriptures, 1 Timothy chapter 6 and other places that deal with some of those very things and we'll talk about it. But let me say that this passage shows that we are, God expects us to increase. And because this man did not take the talent that his master had given him and invest it so that when the master came back, he could have his own with interest Because of that, this man had his talent taken away from him and given to someone else, and he was actually cast into outer darkness. And then, right after this, it talks about, in the very next verse, it says in verse 31, "...when the Son of Man shall come in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him, then shall He sit upon the throne of His glory, and before Him shall be gathered all nations, and He shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep." 
from the goats. And he talks about how some people, he's going to say, well done, you good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your, of your Lord because I was in prison and you visited me. I was sick and you came to visit me. I was hungry and you clothed me or you fed me. I was naked and you clothed me, etc. What he's talking about is it's all in the same sequence right here. He's saying that if we take our resources that God blesses us with, remember the teaching that we're a steward, And if we take all of these things that God has given us and if we use them only for ourselves, that is not being a good steward. God doesn't give finances to us just for ourselves, but rather so that we can go out and clothe the naked and feed the hungry and visit those in prison. Did you know it takes money to go visit people in prison? The price of gas today, if nothing else, it's going to cost you some money to go there. It's going to cost you some time all of these other things. Everything that he's listing right here is talking about being a steward. God has given you talents and not only financial money, but giftings, abilities, and he expects you to use all of these things. Of course, you have needs and God is not against you getting your needs met, but the number one purpose is God wants you to use what he's given you to bless other people. And if you don't do it, well then, those who didn't visit those that were in prison, who didn't clothe the the naked, that didn't feed the hungry and all of these things, he's going to say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. And he's going to cast them into outer darkness. Now again, this is a strong word. And there's a lot of people that don't like this because what I'm doing is putting the stewardship over our money And we're making it to where it's not really just optional. This is the best use of it. This is what you should do. But we're making it to where it's literally an integral part of what God expects every one of us to do. And people today aren't willing to do that. Most of the time you'll hear these passages spiritualized where this is talking about your giftings, the anointing, the call on your life. And even though I believe that there's an application there, the context of this, he is literally talking about money. Uh, I was sharing with you out of Mark chapter 10 where Jesus told this rich man to go sell everything he had and give it to the poor. And when the rich man wouldn't do it and he left and was sad because he had great possessions, well, then Jesus began to teach to his disciples and he says, how hard is it for those who trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man or a person who is trusting in their riches to enter into heaven. Now, Jesus right there elevated our attitude and our dealings with money to a realm that literally he took a man who ran to him, fell down and worshipped him and said, what must I do? And he put money up there and he says, until you become a faithful steward in this area, you cannot follow me. Today, most people would just be livid at this. I'm sure that there's people angry at me right now for my teaching on finances and saying, you're making it like you have to be a faithful steward of finances before God can accept you. That's exactly what Jesus was teaching in Mark chapter 10. Now, I know that this isn't the way it's done today, but and I'm not here to say that a person who isn't serving God or trusting God in this area of finances can't be a Christian, but I am saying it's much, much, much more important than what Uh, emphasis we've put on it and so it needs to change. Now there's a fine line here and actually you get into motives here which it's very hard to deal with and some people will just take some of the words that I'm saying and have a wrong motive and you will avoid and make everything I'm saying of no effect in your life. The motive behind what you do 
is more important than the action itself. One of the scriptures that says that is over in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 3. And that passage says, And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. This is talking about our giving. And even though giving is good, and if you give, uh, it says if you give all of your goods to feed the poor, or if you make the ultimate sacrifice of literally laying your life down and give your body to be burned. If you make your physical body a sacrifice, you might bless somebody else, but it's not going to profit you anything if it's not done motivated by love. So the motive behind your action is more important than your action. So I want to stress that, that as I'm talking about that one of the attitudes you need to have as a steward is that God wants you to increase. When I say that immediately, some people that have this wrong motivation and it's all selfish and they're just thinking, oh man, this is scriptural justification for me to just get as much as I can, can all that I get and then sit on the can. And here is scriptural reason that I'm supposed to increase. I'm supposed to be taking the things that God has given me and increasing them. Well, it is true that God wants you to increase, but this motive behind your actions is super, super important. Let me turn over to these passages in 1 Timothy chapter 6, I believe it is. And he starts off the chapter here talking about slaves. And of course, slavery isn't an issue in our world today. But back in the days of Paul, it was. And basically what he's saying is that, you know, Paul, he couldn't necessarily change the Roman government, but Paul was probably the most influential man in the body of Christ in the first century. And even though he might not have changed the unbelievers or changed his society, he certainly could have influenced the church. And if he would have said that slavery is is wrong, stop it, quit this, as Christians we shouldn't practice this, he certainly would have had enough influence that it would have set hundreds, maybe thousands, tens of thousands of slaves free who were owned by Christians. For instance, the book of Philemon was written to a man named Philemon and it was written about his slave Onesimus who had run away and he came all the way to Rome and in Rome he encountered Paul. Paul led him to salvation. I'm sure that Paul had been in Philemon's home. If you study the book of Philemon, you can see that they were good friends, they were well acquainted And it's very possible that the Apostle Paul had met this man Onesimus when he was a slave. When he came to Rome, their paths crossed. Paul led him to the Lord. He got born again. And what did Paul do? Set him free. Tell him now that you're a Christian, you're free in Christ and you don't have to go back. No, he told him to go back to his master and submit to slavery. Now, I think this is really important. Now, this isn't saying that God approves of slavery. This isn't saying that this is God's original plan. But it is saying, as a matter of fact, there's so many things. I don't want to get off and teach on this, but it says over in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you know, abide in the calling wherein you're called. Because if you're a slave, well, you're free in Christ. And if you're a free person, well, then you actually are a bond slave to Christ. You aren't free to do just whatever you want to. So really, Paul is saying there's no difference. When you are in Christ and you find your total life in Christ, it doesn't matter if you're free or if you're a slave because you are having so much victory. You find so much satisfaction and contentment in Christ. It doesn't matter if you're a slave or if you're free. 
Now again, to many people today, this is intolerable because we are more humanistic than the people in the first century were. It's all about my rights. It's all about I've got to have the ability to do this and this and this. And our self-interest, our self-freedoms have been promoted to the realm that it's nearly a god to some people. But here's the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6 saying that, you know, don't despise your master, serve them. And if they are a Christian master, instead of having bitterness and saying, well, if they were a Christian, they ought to know that we're all the same in Christ and they ought to treat me differently and they ought to set me free. Paul says, no, do just the opposite. He says, serve them because they're a brother. Even give them more service than you would give a non-Christian master. And after he says all of these things, He says in verse 3, this is 1 Timothy 6, 3, If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing but doting about questions and strives of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness from which, from such withdraw thyself. Now again, the reason I've gone into all this explanation is to give you the background. People who are preaching that, man, but if it's going to hurt you, I mean, if this is going to affect your rights, if you are telling a slave to go back and submit unto their master, what about their personal freedom? After all, personal freedom is everything. It's all about promoting yourself. It's all about taking care of yourself. You know, I'm talking to people in the United States who in the 60s were called the me generation. It was all about me, self, I, just do everything for yourself, hang everybody else. And uh, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but I tell you, this is really the dividing line in everything, in our society, in our politics, in a lot of things. There's people who are saying, it doesn't matter about anybody else, everybody in the world owes me something. The world revolves around me. I'm going to get as much as I can. I'm going to vote for the people who promise to give me the most drug discounts, provide me with the most benefits and do all of this. And it doesn't matter if it's right or wrong. It doesn't matter if it's going to bankrupt our society. It doesn't matter about anybody else. The world revolves around me. And you know what? There's that attitude. It may not be expressed exactly the way I'm expressing it, but that attitude is alive and well, not only in the United States, But wherever you're watching this program, all around the world, that's the way that most people are living their life. It is all about them. If you are all wrapped up in yourself, you make a very small package. And because we have that mindset, that philosophy, therefore it's just intolerable to to think that anything would happen that restricts my liberty and my freedom. And that basically is kind of where we judge everything from based on how it's going to affect us, not whether it's right or wrong. People today are not willing to make sacrifice. I never will forget when my niece uh, went and saw that movie Saving Private Ryan about the invasion of Normandy in World War II and, of course, it's very graphic and uh, it demonstrated the tremendous sacrifice and pay, uh, price that people had to pay to win World War II. And uh, when she came out of that show, she was crying and she says, I don't know a single friend of hers. She was in high school at the time. I don't know a single boy in our high school that would have enough commitment to somebody else to make a sacrifice like that. 
You know, when they invaded Normandy, they knew that many people were going to die. As a matter of fact, my wife's, uh, let's see, what would it have been? Uncle, who she was named after, his name was James, and she was named Jamie. He died in Iwo Jima, and he was in one of the first waves that went in, and they told them that the first 5,000 people, the first five waves, would never even set foot on the shore that they were just basically using them to draw all of the artillery and machine gun fire and things like this, expend the Japanese uh, ammo, and it would probably be the sixth way before the first person set foot on the beach. And these people knew that they were basically just being used for fodder. They were being used to draw fire and that they were going to cost their life, but they saw it as a sacrifice that was necessary in order to help the others behind them win that island and make that conquest so that they can invade Japan and end the war. In other words, they realized that there was something bigger than themselves and they lived a life of sacrifice. They were more committed to principle than they were to just self. And my niece was saying when she came out of seeing that World War II movie that she didn't know any young kids her age, that would be willing to give up their life for something besides themselves. Now, that may not be an accurate evaluation, but you know what? I'm sure that there is a lot of people that that is exactly descriptive of them. And this verse is saying, if anybody is preaching that, if anybody is living that way, he is proud, he knows nothing, he's causing all of these problems, and he's thinking that gain is godliness. Whatever it takes to promote yourself, that's what you're going to do. Stab anybody else in the back. Forget everybody else. It's all about you. That's what this is speaking against. And some people today would just be livid at this, saying, but man, you are telling a person to not even worry about their personal liberties and their personal freedoms, and what about them? And they would be so mad. Our politically correct world today is so afraid of offending a person and doing anything that can cause anybody any discomfort. And we are just all out of whack in this area. And after Paul says these radical statements, he says in verse 5 that they are perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness from such withdraw thyself. And did you know that attitude is prevalent today? There are people that are thinking if it's going to pre- promote my well-being, if it's good for me, then that has to be the right thing. They, The world revolves around them and their way of thinking. And there are people that they may phrase it differently, but this is exactly what they think. Whatever is good for me is what I'm going to do and hang anybody else. And he, Paul is speaking against that. And so, after he's already countered this ungodly attitude in the area of slavery and in the area of these social things, now he brings it down to our attitude towards finances. And in verse 6 he says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. And this word contentment here, as he goes on and will explain in just a few minutes, is talking about with your needs men, having these basic necessities and things like this. It's not a matter of either spirituality or riches. You can have both if your motive is correct. And in verse 7 he says, For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. The truth is that when you die, that hearse that's going to the cemetery is not going to be carrying any worldly possessions with you because you came into this world naked and you're going to leave naked. And that's what this is saying. For we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we can carry nothing out. 
and having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lust, which drown man in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness, fight the good fight of faith, etc. Now some people have taken these verses that talk about being content with what we have, that the love of money is the root of all evil. If you follow after money, you're going to pierce yourself through with all of these hurtful lusts that destroy men's souls. And they've taken passages of Scripture like this to basically teach against having money and prosperity. And they basically have instilled in many people a poverty attitude to where we think that people who have money just cannot serve God. Now again, I dealt with this in a previous teaching from Mark chapter 10 where Jesus said that it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now that would sound on the surface like God cannot have any rich people or people who have great wealth following Him. But uh, I've already dealt with this, but let me just deal with it by saying this. If you believe that, well then those of you watching this program cannot have a relationship with God. And there's some of you that think, well, I don't consider myself to be wealthy or rich. It's a relative statement. You may not be wealthy or rich compared to your neighbor or compared to somebody else or if you're watching TV and all of the ads about the things that they're telling you that you cannot live without and that you don't yet have the nicest car and you don't yet have this nicest house and all of these kind of things. But if you compare yourself to 90% of the people living on this planet today, if you've got a television and you're watching this program, you are considered wealthy. Did you know that many of you who consider yourself below the poverty level and you are living in bad situations? I've heard a statement that if, there, if you have $10 in your pocket, you are wealthier than 90% of the world's population. Now that is one radical statement. And I can guarantee you that most of you watching this program over television have that much money, the equivalent of $10. If you've got a television set, the chances are that you have prosperity enough so that in comparison to the rest of the world, you would be considered rich. I remember going to India and I ate in a man's home who was a millionaire. I mean, this guy was very wealthy by Indian standards. And yet when I ate off of his plates, those plates were cracked and dirty and uh, his home was not up to the standard that I was used to. Here in the United States, I certainly wouldn't have considered myself wealthy as I grew up, and yet my home was nicer than his home. And you know what? When I got over to India and saw all of these things, I realized that in respect to the, or comparison to the rest of the world, did you know that we are super, super rich? So when you say, if you're going to interpret these verses to say that if you've got any money, you can't serve God. Well, that's a relative statement. And again, most of the people right here in the United States who are preaching this poverty mentality and telling you that you can't have very much, they are super wealthy compared to most of the people alive on this earth. They are preaching against themselves by saying this. If we compare ourselves to people in times past, 
all of the people that have lived on the face of the earth. Did you know just about every person is wealthy? We've got conveniences and things. They would have been considered luxuries, tremendous luxuries in time gone by, and yet they're now necessities for us. We are living in a period of unparalleled prosperity and affluence in the world. And so if we look at the human race as a whole, if you look back to the time that these scriptures were written, what the standard of living was like. I guarantee you most of the people in this time only had like one room that they shared with multiple people living in there. They didn't have indoor toilets. They didn't have all of these kind of things. And I believe, I hope you are smart enough to recognize that this is not what this is talking about. Look in verse 10. It says, the love of money is the root of all evil. Not money itself. Money isn't the problem. It's the attitude that people have or the trust that people put in money. If people's trust is in the Lord, then God will give you money to be able to accomplish His instructions and uh, and, uh, the call that He's placed on your life. There is nothing wrong with having money. If you think that there is, then I challenge you to take all of your money and send it to me because you wouldn't want to have anything that's going to lead you away from God. Amen. You know, hopefully you are sharp enough to figure out that this has to have a little bit of interpretation. Money is not evil. It's people who love money and what it will produce instead of trusting in God and making God their source. Well, I tell you, it is amazing how religion has perverted this and we've got some people that are actually promoting poverty in the name of the Lord. We've had religious sects that have taken a vow of poverty, which is an ungodly thing to do. God doesn't want you to take money and just sit there and be poor and always be a person who's having to have somebody else help you. He wants to get you into this position of where you are so blessed that you can help other people. He wants you to be a part of the answer instead of a part of the problem. And to do that, there is going to have to be financial increase. You're going to have to drop your prejudice and your barriers against having money. And I know that some of you are thinking, man, this is strange, some of the things you're saying. Who has a prejudice against having money? Well, I did. I really did. You know, I was raised in a fairly affluent home. I mean, compare. I'd never thought of it, but when I look back on it, I was uh, better off than most of the people that I grew up with, and I always had all of the things that I needed, and so I was fairly well off. But when I got started in the ministry, I had been taught by people that for a minister to have money and stuff is an ungodly concept. Some of these exact same things that we've been reading in these passages of Scripture. As a matter of fact, I can remember a couple coming to our church. I won't tell you what denomination it was, but they came to this church. They were missionaries, and the guy got up and spoke. And then, instead of going to a motel or going to someone's home, this man and his wife slept in the back of their station wagon because they didn't want to take any money and send it on a hotel. The woman took her dress. She only owned two dresses, and she took one dress and washed it out every night and then put the other one on. And they came in, and I mean in that church that we were in, the pastor just set them on a pedestal and said, what a godly example. These are people that are suffering, that this is the way that a true Christian should be, that we shouldn't have any of these worldly possessions and things like that. Did you know, I believe it's really now, I look back and I see that it's really just the opposite. 
That was a terrible witness for the Lord that God can't even take care of His own. God doesn't want you to be sleeping in your car and not having anything. And yet, that's basically the the model that was presented to me. So when I got started in ministry, that was a part of the financial problems that I had was that I, I was embarrassed about finances. I was embarrassed to have things. I thought that ministers should actually do without. Have you ever seen ministers that go into a store or something and they're saying, I'm a minister, could you give me a discount? Boy, I tell you, I hate stuff like that because what that's saying to the world is that Christians just cannot compete. Christians cannot prosper. We need help. Could you please help us? And in a sense, it's like Christian begging. I tell you, I've never seen the righteous forsaken or his seed out begging bread. A person who is doing something like that and has this poverty attitude is not glorifying God. That is a total perversion of these scriptures. Well, then why are they in there? Basically, they are talking about covetousness, which Colossians chapter 3 verse 5 says that covetousness is idolatry. Putting money and what money can do for you ahead of God to where you serve money more than you serve God, to where you desire money more than you desire God. That's wrong. And that's what this is talking about in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, it's the love of money which is the root of all evil. And that's what people have coveted after. Not money. Money itself is not moral or immoral. It's amoral. It doesn't have any virtue or evil in it of itself. It's what you do with that money. It's the attitude that people have about money that is the problem. And that's what these scriptures are talking about. And it's very important that you don't let the warnings about a wrong attitude towards money and what people who have coveted and lusted after money, how that's caused destruction in people's lives. It's important that you don't let that prejudice you and actually put up a barrier to where you are saying that you just don't want any more. Here's another way of saying what I'm basically trying to get across is that true biblical prosperity is not selfish. It's not about you. It's not about getting your needs met, but rather it's you desiring to prosper so that you can fulfill the instructions that God has given you so that you can be a blessing to other people. That's what true biblical prosperity is about. And you know, when I teach on prosperity, the number one criticism that I get is that people say, so you're just preaching that people are supposed to have bigger houses and cars and that we can use God to just go up and down the aisles of heaven like a grocery cart and say, give me, give me, give me. My name is Jimmy. My middle name is Moore. Give me more. And so you just want more, more, more for yourself. And people think that that is selfish. They use scriptures like these in First Corinthians, uh, First Timothy chapter 6 and other passages and they just shoot you down saying you're just preaching more. You're just indulging your flesh. No, that's not what I'm preaching. The reason you should want increase is not so that you can have more, but so that you can be a blessing. And then it just so happens that as you get this attitude and you become a giver instead of a taker, a sower instead of a reaper, when you get that attitude, as God can get the money through you, He will get it to you. And God is El Shaddai, not El Chipo. He is not poor, 
and He doesn't mind you having things, and if you will get this attitude to where you live to give, then I can guarantee you God will get this money through you, but as the money flows through, you will have your needs met supernaturally. I am not preaching a... uh, you know, an austere lifestyle, a poverty lifestyle, and that everything just goes to everybody else. But God deals off of percentages. I tell you, I don't know if you're getting all of these things I'm saying, but this is some powerful stuff. You know, I've got a pastor friend that actually uh, lives in a very nice house. I haven't been to see him in a few years, but the last house I saw was well over half a million dollars. And he drives fancy cars, Corvettes, and all of these kind of things. And a lot of people criticize him and talk against him and saying this is wrong for a preacher to have all of these nice things. But what they're missing is God deals with us based on percentages. Now when I go on and I talk about the tithe, that's talking about a percentage, 10% of what you get. God doesn't look at what you have. He looks at what you have in relation to what you give. And this man that I was telling you about who lives in at least a half a million dollar home, drives these very fancy cars and and wears the nicest clothes and does all of these kind of things. Did you know that this same man, I don't know what he does now, but a number of years ago, say probably five to ten years ago, uh, I was more in fellowship with him than what I am now. And this man was giving away between thirty and forty thousand dollars per month, per month. Now, that is a huge amount of giving. And when you look at that, did you know that that means that a $500,000 house is only about a year to a year and a half's worth maximum of his giving? Now, think about that. How many of you would be willing to live in a house that equaled one year's worth of your giving? You know, if that was true, there's many of you that would be living out on a street. There's many of you that could not own a home. You couldn't even rent a decent thing. You'd have to be living in a flop house. You'd have to move in with somebody else. You'd have to share rent. And you know what? What I'm saying is that man, even though he has a very nice house, very nice cars, very nice clothes, percentage-wise, he is a better steward of money than people who are living in poverty and things like this. God doesn't care what you live in. God doesn't matter whether you drive a Mercedes or a Volkswagen. It doesn't matter to God what you've got. What God looks at is what you give. He's looking at the percentage you're living off of. Did you know a person who lives off of 10% of their income and gives 90% away, God considers that to be a better steward than a person who lives off 90% and gives 10% away, or a person who lives off of 100% and gives nothing away. And it wouldn't matter if that person living off of the 10% lived in a million-dollar home. If they were doing that, God would see them as a great steward of His resources. I tell you, this is really important that you get hold of this because if you don't understand this thing about percentages, then when we take the gospel and we go into Africa or India or some other country and we start preaching, there's going to be a tendency to try and get everybody to live up to our standard. And that's not the way that the gospel works. You know, if you live in a grass hut in Africa, you know what? You don't need a hundred, two hundred, three hundred, four hundred thousand dollar home. 
But you know what? If you're a giver, you can live in the nicest grass hut in the community. You can have two chickens instead of one. You can have three pigs instead of one. You know what? That's prosperity. It's all based on, it's a relative type of thing. Some people will say, well, this is just an American gospel. No, this is a gospel that will work anywhere in the world. But you're going to have to understand that you can't take American standards and just transpose them to other places in the world. God is looking at you, your stewardship, based on percentages. And it's very important that you get hold of this concept. And so we're trying to put all of this together and say that God wants you to increase, but not for yourself. True prosperity isn't selfish. Now see, what most people preach against when they preach against financial prosperity is they preach against the greed associated with it. And there is a danger in becoming covetous. Colossians chapter 3 verse 5 says that covetousness is idolatry. And God certainly doesn't want us to have idols in our life. And you can get to where money becomes a God, an idol to you. And so it's the seeking after money. It's the love of money that is the problem, not money itself. God wants you to prosper. But He wants you to have this steward attitude to where the prosperity isn't just for you. It's so that you can accomplish what God wants you to do and so that you can be a blessing to other people. Here's a passage of Scripture over in Proverbs chapter 23. And let me just read a few verses here so that we can put this into context. Proverbs 23.1 says, When thou sittest to eat with a ruler, consider diligently what is before thee. Did you know that the word consider here is talking about a mental process, understanding, processing the thought? I believe that basically what he's saying is when you go in to somebody who's wealthy and you sit at their table and they got all of this, I mean food that maybe you've never seen or heard of before sitting before you, you better use your head instead of your stomach. You better not let your desires lead you. But instead, you need to think rationally. And then he goes through and shows you some things here and tells you about this being deceitful meat. Don't be led astray. Don't be bribed by all of these things that he's offering you. But instead, use wisdom is the point he's making. In verse 2, he says, And put a knife to thy throat, if thou be a man given to appetite. Major difference between hunger and appetite. Hunger is how your body knows when to eat and how much to eat. But appetite is something that if you indulge it, you can never be satisfied. Ecclesiastes chapter 6 verse 7 says that you could, you know, all of the labor of a man is for his mouth. In other words, saying that everything you do is to feed yourself and take care of you, not only physically, but in your clothes and all the things that you need. All of a man's labor is for his mouth, but his appetite is never satisfied. Appetite is not a good thing in Scripture. It's talking about an indulgence of the flesh. And if you are a person given to appetite, it'd be better to put a knife to your throat and slit it than to go there and sit before somebody who's got all of these physical things because the lust for them could entice you into doing just about anything. In verse 3 it says, "...be not desirous of his dainties, for they are deceitful meat." And then in verse 4 it says, "...labor not to be rich." Cease from thine own wisdom. Now let me break this down for just a minute because this says labor not to be rich. What does this mean? Does this mean that you aren't supposed to work in order to get money? Is this a scripture that is saying that you shouldn't go to work, that you ought to just sit at home and expect God to rain the money out of the sky? 
Of course, that's not what this means. There's a lot of scriptures that go against this. Many, 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 many scriptures go against that kind of thinking. Uh, one of the uh, classic scriptures on this is 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10 that says, If you don't work, don't eat. Well, that's a powerful prescription. You know, if our welfare system was to enforce that standard and only help people who are first of all working before they would give them food stamps or anything else, I guarantee you it would clear up a tremendous amount of problems that we see in our society. So this isn't saying that you don't go to work to get paid. But the emphasis here is don't go to work to get that money just so that you could use it to feed your face and to take care of yourself. The context of all of this, it's just like he's talking about this food. There is nothing wrong with you going to a rich man's house and sitting down and eating food. Food is not sin. Hungry, being hungry for food is not sin. But the sin is when you go beyond hunger and it's all about lust. Somehow or another you get to where... Have any of you ever done this to where you have a bad day and things are going bad and you feel bad emotionally and you eat to solve your emotional problems, not because you're hungry, but it's an emotional type of thing. Are there some of you that eat because it makes you somehow or another feel superior? Are there some of you that go to these restaurants where you could have gone and gotten a meal that would have been just as good, probably even more nutritious for you for one-tenth the price, but you go to these fancy things so that you can savor it? And it's all an emotional deal. It's all about how you feel. It's not about just eating. When you begin to start indulging your appetite that way, that's when you get led astray. And Satan can use something like that and deceive you. That's how he came against Adam and Eve. He used a lust for food to drive them into temptation or to draw them into temptation. Of course, the same thing has happened many, 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 many times in Scripture. And that's what these verses are warning against. It's not teaching against food. It's talking about this lust for food that goes beyond satisfaction and beyond what you need. And it's just a lust, an indulgence of your flesh. Well, right in the midst of those verses, it says labor not to be rich. In the same way that food isn't wrong, it's this perversion. When you use food for something it was never intended to do, and that's to give you emotional satisfaction and somehow or another make you feel superior or any of these other things. When you use food wrong, that's what it's preaching against. And this isn't preaching against money. It's not telling you not to work and get money in exchange for the work that you do. But it's saying don't make the object of your work a paycheck. And some of you are just shocked beyond measure, like saying, well, certainly that's the the only reason I work. That shouldn't be the only reason you work. Let me give you some other scriptures to go right along with this. You might ought to turn over in your Bible and look this up, or you wouldn't believe that this is in the Bible. But look at this in Ephesians chapter 4, and in verse 28, it says, Let him that stole steal no more but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Notice in this verse 28, it says, Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing that is good. It's contrasting labor with stealing. You could say it this way, that if you aren't working... Now, please listen to me because I know some of you aren't going to listen and aren't going to hear with your heart. You're going to take offense at what I'm saying, but this needs to be said 
because this is misunderstood today. But if you aren't working and you are just mooching off of society, then you're stealing. You're taking. Quit doing that and instead go to work. Now let me put a little PS here. Anybody can need help temporarily. Anybody could be laid off. Anybody could need something to help them while they're going out and getting another job. I am not saying that it is wrong. It's sin. If you ever take help from anybody, whether it's an individual or the government, I'm not saying that just temporary uh, help is wrong. Anybody can be in a situation where you need help at some time. But I'm saying that this welfare mentality to where people think that the government, society, everybody else owes them something and that because you can stay at home and draw welfare and you aren't disabled, there is no reason. It's just that you can live better off of welfare than you can going getting a job at McDonald's. That is a welfare mentality and you know what that is? That's stealing. That's mooching off of other people. And the scripture is saying, don't do that. Don't steal, but rather labor, working with your hands. And notice what it says, that you may have to give to him that needs. This verse makes it very clear that the reason you work is to enable you to be a giver to other people. Radical, radical concept. And some people think this doesn't work in real life. Only you preachers can preach this, but it doesn't work when the rubber hits the road. But it does. I have seen this work in my life. I wasn't always a preacher, and I have seen God prosper me. I've seen it work in the lives of hundreds, thousands of other people, and it's a scriptural concept, and it works. As hard as it may be for some of you to understand this, the reason you should work isn't just for your needs, but rather so that you could be a blessing to other people. If you got to where you did what the Scripture says in Matthew 6.33, where you sought first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, then all of these things would be added unto you. Let me turn over here and just deal with these passages. This is Jesus speaking, and this is, this is powerful. You know, I'm just going to have to preface this by saying I know that many of you aren't going to get this. I hate to admit that, but I tell you, it takes a revelation from God. It takes a supernatural quickening of your understanding to understand what I'm about to say here because this just goes right over the head of most people. Most people, it's all about the reason they work is because they've got to have that money to make their house payment, their car payment, their insurance payment, to buy food, clothes, to do all of these things. And that's the driving force behind people working. I'm telling you, if that's what you think work is all about, is getting this money so that you can pay your bills, you are frustrating yourself. That's the reason you get discouraged. That's the reason you wake up on Monday and call it Blue Monday because you have to go to work. That is not the way that God wants you to live. There is another way to live. You can get to where you work and do what it is that you feel God has called you to do. And I I wish I had time to teach on that. I just recently did a series on the subject of destiny, but some of you aren't even doing what God has called you to do. And there's no way that that work, your vocation, is ever going to be satisfying if you don't know for sure that you're doing what God's called you to do. But let's say that you know that this is what God's called you to do. If the reason you are doing it is just to get the paycheck so that you can meet your own needs, then you're violating a number of scriptures. Look at this in Matthew chapter 6. 
And in verse 19 it says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. Now we're going to go on and read some other verses, but let's just think about this for a moment. This says, Don't lay up for yourselves treasures here upon earth where thieves break through and steal and moth and rust doth corrupt. Does this mean that you aren't supposed to have a bank account? Does this mean that you aren't supposed to have a savings? Does this mean that you aren't supposed to leave an inheritance for your children and your children's children? I can show you a lot of scriptures that talk about that a godly person will leave an inheritance not only to their own children but to their grandchildren. You know, in order to leave an inheritance, this means that you've got more money than it takes for you to survive and you are going to have some extra built up so that you can bless not only the first generation but the second generation. This is talking about quite a level of prosperity. Now, how does that conform to these scriptures? The way I look at this is that when you are leaving an inheritance and you're building up a reservoir... It depends. If you are doing that for yourself, if you're doing it because you are fear-motivated and you're afraid that you're going to have some kind of a physical problem in your old age and so it's just all fear-motivated and it's all selfish and self-serving, you know what? I do believe that that is a wrong motivation. But if you have a reserve built up, let's say, for instance, you don't care. You know God's going to take care of you. But if worse comes to worse and you failed in an area and something happened, at least you wouldn't have to be a drain on your children or something. You would have money set up. You could do this so that you could be a blessing to other people. That would be the right motivation. If you are laying up money so that you can give an inheritance to your children and your children's children, that's not laying up treasures for yourself. That's laying up treasures for other people. Again, you could take these verses and interpret them in such a strict, narrow way that this means that you should never have any money, just give it all away. But that violates many other scriptures that talk about things about you laying up money for your children's children. What does it mean? Well, I think that the key is all in the motives. Are you just building up money so that you could be like the man that Jesus spoke about who built bigger barns and said, eat and drink, for you have many goods laid up for many days. You know, eat, eat and be merry. Eat, drink, and be merry. Nope, that's a wrong attitude. But if you build up these reservoirs so that you can be a blessing to your children and your children's children so that you can abound unto every good need, well, then there's nothing wrong with that. This isn't talking against having money. It's talking about using money just for yourself, putting your trust and your confidence in the money that you have set aside instead of in the Lord. And if you do that, you are going to be... you're going to be sadly disappointed at the results. In verse 20 it says, But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. Now some people say, how do you make a deposit in heaven? Well, you do it through good works. And also I'll teach on this in more detail, but you can take money which is temporary and it's going to be burned up and someday be gone, and you can turn it into something eternal by sowing it into a person's life especially to preach the gospel. When you give to the preaching of the gospel and those people share the truth and people get born again and healed and delivered and set free and God moves in their life because they've heard the truth, then you have just taken that money and by sending that person to preach the gospel, you have taken something temporary, carnal, that is going to be burned up and you turned it into something eternal, a changed life that will benefit you throughout all eternity. So you can lay up treasure in heaven. In verse 21 it says, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. 
And it goes on to says, The light of the body is the eye. If therefore the eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? What verses 22 and 23 are talking about is that when your eye is single, this is just talking about your focus is single upon God, then you're going to be flooded with His light. God will give you wisdom, direction, guidance, leadership, and you will have the power and the anointing of God flowing in you. Your life will be more fulfilled. You'll be more prosperous. But when your eye is evil, in the previous verse, it was talking about a single eye. In this verse, it says, but if your eye be evil, implying that anything that isn't single upon God is evil. Boy, this is something that it's hard to get across because this is just like off the charts from the way most people think. Most people honestly think that their life is basically theirs. What they do for a living is basically theirs. What they do with their money is basically theirs. And they just give God an acknowledgement. They give Him 10%. They may go one hour a week if they are very religious to church and feel like that they have done God a great honor by doing that. If you are ultimate, I mean the very most spiritual person, then maybe you have a 15 or 20 or 30 minute devotional per day and we think that we have done God some great service And then we go out and spend the rest of our 16 hours during the day that we're awake doing whatever we want to and think we've already, you know, given God 5, 10, 20 minutes. We give Him one day a week. We give Him a tenth of our time. And we think that that is just really generous on our part. You know, the truth is our whole life is meant to be given over to God. We should be single upon God. And even though we only use... I mean, we only give 10% of our finances and then offerings above that, maybe 10, 20% of our finances goes to the Lord. Actually, we see it all as being His. And it needs to be single, that everything we do is for the glory of God. Whatever you eat or whatever you drink, 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, do it to the glory of God. You're eating, you're drinking, you're living, you're dying, your sorrow, everything that goes on in your life, you ought to be single in your focus upon God. That's what these verses are talking about. And it says in verse 24, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, which is an old English word for money. Now, if all this be true, that we're supposed to be totally given over to God, then the question comes up, well, then how do I survive? Who's going to take care of me? Man, if I did everything for the sake of the Lord, who's going to pay my rent? Who's going to buy me clothes? What am I going to eat? Where am I going to sleep? And that's exactly the reason that he begins in these verses to go on and says, Therefore, take no thought for your life what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body what ye shall put on is not the life more than meat, and the body than raiment. And I'm not going to have time to read all of these verses, but let me just skip down to verse 33. After he talks about, don't worry about all of these things, he says in verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all of these things. All of what things? All of these things in verses 25 down through 32. Where where you sleep, what you eat, what you're clothed with, God will supernaturally add these things unto you. If you will take care of God first, if you will put God first in your finances and give to other people first, 
then God will supernaturally start meeting your needs. And so how do you do this? This, it, it just takes a revelation from God. I'm praying that the Holy Spirit right now would open up your heart and help you to understand what I'm saying because this is just so different than the way people think that the natural mind cannot think this way unless you become spiritually minded and the Holy Spirit quickens this to you. This is just going to go right over your head. So please put up your antenna. Please open up your heart. If you're doing something else, pay attention Because this is a truth that could transform your life, but it can't be caught with just your mind. You've got to let your heart grab hold of this. In verse, this is Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. Basically what they're saying is just put God first. You can't serve God and mammon or money is what it says in verse 24. Well, then how do you do this? If you have to choose between the two, does this mean that by serving God and if you put God first, then you're never going to have any money? How are you going to pay your bills if you just put God first and seek Him with your whole heart? Well, the answer to that is given in these next verses. After he had said in the very last sentence of Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, he said, you cannot serve God in mammon. Then in verse 25, he says, therefore... Since you can't serve God and mammon, you have to choose between the two. Well, it's obvious that we should choose God, but how am I going to survive? Who's going to take care of me if I just, you know, like we use that scripture in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. Don't steal anymore, but work with your hands so that you can have to give to him that needs. If I work not to pay my bills, but if I work so that I can be a blessing to others, well, then what's going to happen to me? How are my bills going to get paid? In verse 25, Matthew 6, 25, Therefore, here's how it works, Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life what ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat, and the body than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, neither gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are you not much better than they? He's basically saying, look in nature, look at the birds. Have you ever read a headline that one million birds died yesterday? Starvation. No, you've never read that and you never will because you know what? God will take care of birds. If God cares that much for a little tiny bird, how much more a person that has been made in his image We ought to have enough trust and confidence in God and in His goodness that we would just recognize that God will take care of us. And he said in verse um, 27, it says, But which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? In other words, you worrying about your finances and how am I going to make ends meet and how am I going to get the tuition paid and how am I going to pay for my child's college tuition and how am I going to ever take a vacation and how are we going to do all of these things? He says, by taking thought, can you add one cubit or we could say one inch unto our stature? Verse 28, and why take you thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothe the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Boy, what a radical statement. 
We feel like we've got to worry about things. How am I going to make ends meet? How am I going to do this? And I've got, we've got to sit there and plan and do all of these things. And so therefore, the statement in the last part of verse 24 where it says you cannot serve God and mammon. In verses 22 and 23 where you've got to be single on God. You've got to serve Him with your whole heart. Not just give Him a token devotion. Not just give Him one hour a week. But give Him everything you've got financially and everything. Work not to supply your needs, but work so that you can fulfill the call of God on your life and use that money to bless other people. If you do that, how are you going to survive? Well, look at the lilies of the field. They don't toil. They don't work. They don't do anything. And yet, look at them. Solomon, in all of his glory, was never arrayed like a lily of the field. If God is going to do that for the grass, which is here today and gone tomorrow, how much more will he take care of you? He says in verse 31, Therefore, take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewith shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. You could say it to update it to our modern day situation. You could say, For after all these things do the unbelievers seek. There should be a difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. A person who's in relationship with God and a person who's not in relationship with God. Even in the area of our finances, there should be a difference. We shouldn't be out there just seeking money and struggling and striving the way that an unbeliever is because we have a covenant with God that includes financial prosperity. God wants you to prosper. Psalms chapter 35 verse 27 says, Let all those who favor my righteous cause say continually, Let God be magnified, which has pleasure in the prosperity of His servant." God is pleased when you prosper. God is not pleased when you don't prosper. God wants you to prosper. God is for you. Since all of this is true and we have a relationship with God, shouldn't there be a difference between a Christian who who knows God, who is the friend of God, who has the favor and the blessing of God on his life? Shouldn't there be a difference between a Christian and a non-Christian in their area of finances? If God is for us and if He's pleased with our prosperity, then why don't we see more prosperity? Well, there's a number of reasons. One of them is we, first of all, don't know the truth. We've been prejudiced and biased against prosperity, thinking that it's evil for us to have money, and that's going to hinder the flow of God's things. And then our motive is wrong. Sometimes Christians get to where they are just as covetous. They want all of the things the same way that non-believers do. And covetousness, Colossians 3, 5 says, is idolatry. So we've got to purify our motives. And there's some other things we have to do. But basically, he's making this comparison saying that if God is going to take care for all of these things for the unbelievers, how much more is he going to take care of you? And in verse 32, he says, For after all these things do the Gentiles seek, the unbelievers seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you have need of these things. So what's the answer? Verse 33 says, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all of these things, talking about what you eat, where you sleep, what you're clothed with, all of your physical needs, God will take care of them if you will take care of of other people. Now here is a truth that you just need to open up your heart and let the Holy Spirit reveal this to you. 
But if you would truly do this, and I'm not talking about just go through the motions because some preacher has said something, so you're going to try it out, but you don't really believe it. You don't really trust it. You aren't committed to this, but you're just going to do it, if nothing else, to prove me wrong. You know, if that's your attitude, you're going to fall flat of your face. But if you could get a revelation that by putting God first, that God would supernaturally start taking care of you it would revolutionize your life. Most of us, what we do is go out and work. And I mean, we work hard and we do all of these things. We have garage sales. We have baked things. We build little things. We do crafts. We do two jobs. We scrimp and save. We get the more fuel economical cars. We do all of these things trying to accumulate money. And it's really all about us meeting our needs us taking care of our responsibilities. And if we can do that and have anything left over, we're glad to give it to God. And we're glad to say, God, here, here's what's left. I love you and honor you and I want to give, but this is all that's left after I've met my needs. Now, you wouldn't be that brazen. You wouldn't say it in those ways, but I can guarantee you that's exactly the way the vast majority of people, even Christians, think. It's all about using money to meet our needs. But you know, the scripture, and these scriptures that I've been using actually just totally invert that or reverse this. The scriptural method is to seek first with your finances the kingdom of God. Work so that you can have to give to him that needs, Ephesians 4.28. That's what it's all about. And if we could truly do that, and I'm not talking about just going through the motions, but from our hearts, say, God, I want to give I want to be a blessing. I want to prosper so that I can help other people. And that is my goal. And that is the main goal. That's the number one thing. If you could truly do that. Now grab hold of something because this is going to be a revelation to some of you. But if you could truly get that attitude, then God would start taking care of your needs better accidentally than you've ever done it on purpose before. When you get to where you seek first the kingdom of God, even in your giving, in your finances, then God will prosper you and take care of you. And God is El Shaddai, not El Chipo. He is not going to cause you to live in a cardboard hut. God lives in in a place where the streets are paved with gold, where the gates are made out of a pearl, where there is, I mean, wealth untold. God is not cheap. When you get to where you don't labor to make all of your ends meet, but you labor first and foremost to glorify God in your job, provide a service that blesses people, and then take the money that comes from that and you give right off the top to God. And you put first the kingdom of God. When you start doing that, it starts a supernatural flow towards you where God will cause you to prosper. And like I was saying, He's not cheap. He will bless you and you will begin to start having your needs meant supernaturally. As a matter of fact, I had a man one time when a car was given to me and this guy had given me a car, he had given me suits, he had given me a number of things. And you know what? I was actually embarrassed. I was living at a greater level of prosperity than I had ever lived in my life. And I was actually thinking, what are people going to think about me? I'm a preacher driving a brand new car, very, very nice new car. And I was kind of thinking, what are they going to think about me? And I voiced something about that. And this man said to me, he says, if you aren't embarrassed 
with your level of prosperity, you haven't tapped into God's system yet. And boy, you know what? That just really struck a chord in me. And there's a lot of people that I can guarantee you, people could come to your house, look at the things that you've got, and there's nothing embarrassing about it. If anything is embarrassed, it's you're embarrassed about how poor it is. But nobody would sit there and think that you've got a lot of stuff. You know, when you get into God's system and you begin to put in first the kingdom of God, God will just bless you. I could give you personal testimonies. I've already mentioned this, how my wife and I have given away, I think I counted up at one time, six cars that we've given away. And we've had at least that many or more bought and given to us. And I mean nice cars. And I've had people criticize me before because I've I've driven a nice car. And what am I supposed to do? Turn down a free, brand new car and go buy something? Hurt my own cash flow so that I could look humble and be accepted in the eyes of religious prejudice and biased people? Man, that's just stupid. You know what? When you begin to start putting first the other people in giving, God will supernaturally take care of you. Let me use this passage of Scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And in verse 8, it says, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound unto every good work. Now look closely at this. Why is it that God is going to make all grace abound toward you, so that you having all sufficiency in all things... Why is He going to do that for you? It goes on to say that you may abound unto every good work. God wants to prosper you not just so that you can get your needs met, but rather He wants to prosper you so that you can be a blessing. Like He told Abraham in Genesis 12, 3, I will bless you and make your name great and make you a blessing. Before you can be made a blessing, you've got to be blessed. Before you can give something to someone else, you've got to have it, first of all, to be able to give. So God does want to prosper you. He will make all grace abound towards you so that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may do what? Abound to every good work. Here's a definition of what biblical prosperity is. It is not found in how big your house is, how many cars you've got, the kind of clothes, the jewelry, and all of these kind of things. But you know what defines prosperity? According to 2 Corinthians 9, 8, it's whether or not you are able to abound unto every good work. If you see, say for instance, you go to a church that has got a building program and it's not for the pastor's ego, but you are reaching the community. People are coming in and you need a place to meet or you need a daycare or you need a Christian school or something like this. And if you know it's a good work, and yet you can't give towards it because you are so tight financially that you're just barely getting by, then you aren't prosperous. And it wouldn't matter if you had a million-dollar business, if you had a $12 million business, if all of your money is tied up and nothing is liquid, and if you can't give and help the church reach the community, if you can't do things like this, you aren't prosperous. Prosperity is defined not by what you keep, but by how much you give. Are you abounding unto every good work? Are you helping people? That's what it's all about. Well, that's powerful. If you could understand what I'm saying right here and put first the kingdom of God and start giving first and foremost to God and recognize that God, you as a steward 
of God's things. You have to put His concerns above your concerns. He's the one that's given you your resources. He's the one that's given you your talent and your ability that has caused you to be born during the most prosperous time in the history of the earth. Unparalleled opportunity and success. God is the one who's given you everything. The ability to get this wealth. As it says in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18, God gives you the power to get wealth. God's the source of that power. God gave it to you for what purpose? So that you could live in comfort and have your needs met? Not really. He gave it to you so that you could be a blessing. But as you do that, and as you put first the kingdom of God, the scripture makes it very clear that He will also supply your needs, and He will supply your needs better than you would supply your needs. As you go on down, and just for time's sake, I'm going to drop on down into verse 10 of 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 10. It says, Now he that ministereth seed to the sower, both minister bread for your food, and multiply your seed sown, and increase the fruits of your righteousness. Notice in verse 10, it says, He gives seed to the sower. This really isn't talking about a farmer. It's using this illustration of seed for money. Money is like a seed that when you plant it, it grows and it increases. And so this is saying that God gives money to people who are givers. If you are short of money, here's a news flash, it's because you aren't a big giver. If you were a giver, if you were a sower, God gives seed to sowers. God gives money to givers. If you aren't having enough money, it's because you aren't, a, enough, you aren't a big giver. And somebody's saying, well, that's crazy. If I gave, I would have even less money. Well, that would be true if there wasn't a God, but there is a God who's promised when you give, it shall be given unto you, Luke 6, 38. And so if you are short of money, it's because you aren't a giver. God will give money to you if He can get it through you. And notice that it says here in verse 10 that He gives seed to the sower and bread to the eaters. God knows that that sowers have to eat too. So He will never give you just enough to sow, but He will also give you enough to eat so that you can continue and prosper as you're sowing. God knows you have to eat. God knows that you have need. But if you will seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, then all of these other things will be added unto you. Man, that is powerful.